Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, it's been quite the week after all of the fundraising, planning, and preparation. The youth and I uh, took a nice little 24-hour bus ride down to Houston and while there, attended many sessions, participated in a divine service with more than uh, 18,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, took another 24-hour bus ride home. Very restful, let me tell you. Uh, and after all of that, let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me say it is worth asking this question. Was it worth it? In fact, in the Facebook group uh, for the adult leaders uh, that, that take kids down to the youth gathering, one, one person posted this. One of my parents accompanied the group on the trip and asked a good question to which I am sure there is an official answer, but I am curious what other wise people might suggest. They ask, coming from an evangelical background, most rallies that I have attended in the past judge their success at the altar call by how many come to faith, invite Jesus into their hearts, rededicate their life to Christ. What is the end goal of the gathering? What makes it a success? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Of course, I think the same kind of question might be one that we ask about Sunday mornings. What makes a Sunday morning service a success? Now, you can hear behind those questions the idea that somehow we are in control over that success. And that the success means you have to have measurable results. But things just don't work that way in the kingdom of God. If we want to start measuring things in that way, it's going to lead down a very, very bad path very quickly because we'll start to believe that the success is entirely up to us. That we, since it's up to us, then have the freedom to do things in the way that we think will be most successful. And pretty quickly, this pragmatic approach will trump faithfulness to God and his word and all the while we'll be doing it in the name of God and his word. If we are to judge success based on results, think about the prophets. <laughs> they were all a bunch of failures, weren't they? Nobody ever listened to them. They would preach God's word. They would tell people exactly what God told, him, or told them to tell the people. And who listened? By that assessment, you would have to consider St. Paul a failure on a pretty regular basis because there were towns he would go to and they just ran him straight out of town. Nobody, nobody uh, listened to him in the, some of those towns. Of course, by this assessment, we would have to call Jesus a failure because you think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and goes away sad because the rich young ruler loved his money more than he loved the Lord. And you say, well, uh, that wasn't very successful there, Jesus. So very clearly, this is not the way that we should assess things. But I think the Colossians were probably considering questions of this kind when they sent their pastor, Epaphras, to find Paul and ask him some of the questions that had started coming up in their congregation. 
the Colossian congregation wasn't particularly large. It wasn't influential. And they were dealing with people who started to come claiming to speak for God and claiming that they had a way of measuring success. Last week, we started a series of sermons on Colossians, and and you heard about these two parties who were causing trouble. The first was the Gnostics, and if you weren't here, or maybe you forgot over the course of the week, the Gnostics believed that in order to move to the next level spiritually, you had to have a secret knowledge. Of course, this secret knowledge was something they had that you had to get from them, right? Uh, The other issue that the Gnostics used to stir up trouble was they had this idea of the kind of a spiritual-physical dichotomy. So the physical was bad always. The spiritual was good. So you wanted to break free from the spiritual and ascend to the spiritual. For For the Gnostics, all suffering would be bad. Escaping suffering would be good. For the Gnostics, Jesus was a really nice starting point, but you had to move beyond him. You had to move on to get this secret knowledge. You had to to do something in order to escape the physical. And it depended on you. The other group stirring up trouble in the church at Colossae was the Judaizers. The Judaizers also believed, you know, Jesus is a great starting point. But then you'd better get serious and start keeping all of those Old Testament laws. And if you're not doing that, then I don't know, maybe you're not even really a Christian. So they would say, you've got to come to faith in Jesus, and then you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep all of the dietary restrictions from the Old Testament and, and observe all of those festival days like Yom Kippur and uh, uh, Passover and all of those things. And, and success could be measured by how obedient are you to the Old Testament law. For the Judaizers, Jesus, again, was a good starting point You had to move beyond him. You had to do your part in earning a right standing with God. You had to do your part in order to be viewed as righteous by God. It depended on you. That was the key. For the Judaizers and for the Gnostics, it depended on you. You had to do something. Your righteousness before God depended on you. Well, here's the problem with having a right standing with God depending on you. The problem is it depends on you. (laughs) That's just not going to get it, is it? That's not going to work because you have no righteousness to bring before God. But the message we hear from Paul in today's reading is not that you need a new secret knowledge or that you need to go back to the Old Testament laws and try to observe all of those as carefully as you possibly can, but rather Paul points the Colossian congregation. And he points us where? To Jesus. First, Paul begins by reminding us who this Jesus is. We don't have this in today's reading, but I don't care. I'm backtracking to it because it's important. So we're going to begin here at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This Jesus is all in all. He's God in human flesh. He is the one through whom all things were created, by whom all things are sustained. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who makes peace with God between man and God. Peace is made, how? By the blood of his cross. Now, up until this point, we're focusing all on Jesus and what Jesus is and who, who Jesus is, what he's done. But then you say, okay, but... but but is that for me? So he's kind of talked of the general work of Jesus, but then somebody might say, yeah, but is it for me? Well, Paul makes a great move then in verse 21, and he says this, and you, hey, that's you, right? That's who he's talking to. You who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed under all creation and under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? Wait. Peace by the blood of the cross for who? For you. Paul applies this saving work of Jesus, this gospel, this good news, directly to you. You, you were, you were hostile in mind. You were an enemy of God. But now, now you have peace by the blood of his cross. Now you are reconciled to God. Notice, reconciled, what tense is that? Past tense, right? But, but let, me, let me dig just a little bit deeper here with you. In the Greek here, this is a... a passive, a, a perfect passive, okay? So you get the passive part, right? That means it's done to you or for you. So reconciled, who does the reconciling? Not you. It's done to you and for you, right? Jesus does that reconciling, right? You have a right relationship with God through Jesus. He's the one who does it, not you. He does it. So passively done, right? But that perfect tense, this is one that we don't really have a good equivalent in English. It is a past event with continuing effect. It's the same kind of thing that we have on the cross when Jesus says, to tell us die, it is finished. Like, it's done, and the doneness continues perpetually forward infinitely. So you have been reconciled, and that reconciliation, it's still in effect. You don't need something new. It still stands. So you've been reconciled by Jesus. That reconciliation stands. It continues to be in effect. We are reconciled to God, still in a right relationship with God through Jesus. Yeah, but there's got to be something, some kind of catch, right? 
Something you have to do. And you say, ah, I found it. I found it in verse 23. If. Right? Verse 23, what does it begin with? If. If indeed you continue in the faith. You say, ah, there it is. That's where it has to depend on us. (laughs) Well, no. The if is even done by God for us. Who is it that sustains us in the faith? It's not me. It's not you. Who sustains you in the faith? God the Holy Spirit does that. We confess that in the explanation of the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe that I cannot by my own, what? Reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And in the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and what? Keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. So that if is accomplished by God as well. He's the one that sustains us in the faith. We come to church to be sustained in the faith because, well, just like we were talking about with the kids, what do we have right here? What do we have right here? Here's the word of God. Here is the Lord's Supper. That's where Jesus comes to us. That's where he sustains us in the faith. That's where we remain connected to him. And the good works are going to flow from that because that's simply what he's going to bring about in us. I love the way Martin Franzman explains this this section here. He, He writes, for faith is receiving. Faith is the clear-eyed recognition of our beggary and God's giving. Continuing in faith means continuing in beggary before God, drawing on his riches, his strength, and his wisdom hour by hour, day by day, until our days end, or all days end. Faith is just continuing to look to Jesus and know that in Jesus we are reconciled. We have a right relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. And now, connected to Christ, we want to live for the Lord. So, that kind of brings us back to that question we started with. Well, is this divine service a success? Well, you've already had your sins forgiven. Jesus has already come to you and and delivered that forgiveness using me as the means, right? But it's Jesus who's doing the forgiving. So yeah, your sins have been forgiven. You're going to gather around the altar later on, and what's going to happen? Jesus will come to you. You will receive the body and blood of Jesus. You will receive the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I'd call that a success, right? The word of God right here, the gospel is being proclaimed. You are hearing of what Jesus has done for you and how in him you are reconciled to God. Yeah, that's a success. What about the youth gathering? Did the kids go and hear a new revelation from God? (laughs) No. (laughs) I would be very concerned if they had. Uh, No, they had no new revelation from God. In fact, it was the very same message that the church has been proclaiming for 2,000 years. They heard about Jesus. They heard about who they are in Christ and, and what it means to belong to the family of God. They heard what Jesus has done for them and that they are reconciled to God through him. They heard that their identity is sure and certain because they are baptized into Christ. 
But what about the fruit? What about the good works that are supposed to follow? Well, that's, that's something the Lord will bring about through his word, through his sacraments. Let me leave you with these words from St. Paul that remind us. Here is what the church is given to do so that we, we keep our eyes focused on what we are called to do and what we should be about. He writes, to, the, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And when that word is proclaimed, that is success. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.